invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. The disciples are discouraged. They're not sure what's going on. They thought this leader of theirs was the promised Messiah and that he would exalt the Jews by suppressing the tyranny of the Romans. He had performed these great miracles, taught like no one else they had ever heard. How could he not be of God? And when Jesus asked him, asked them who was the Messiah or or who they thought he was, they acknowledged that he was the Messiah of God. And it was then that Jesus used that, once they acknowledged that, once they understood who Jesus was, he used that as an opportunity to share with them that he would not be with them much longer. Because the kingdom would not come like the disciples expected it to come in their life. For the first time, Jesus reveals in chapter 8, verses 31 and following, that He would suffer and die. And that He would do so at the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And of course, we know that Peter and the disciples were surprised and they did not want to see that happen and they could not believe it to be true. Jesus rebuked Peter and the disciples for speaking on behalf of worldly wisdom and then explained to him, to them that, that just as he would suffer, so would they suffer. That following Jesus meant living a life of suffering for His sake. Not exactly the kind of king they were looking for. They were expecting one who would come in power. And now He's telling us not only that He's going to avoid wielding His authority and His power against His opposition, but that He also will suffer at their hands. And in addition to that, that they are also going to suffer. What kind of kingdom is that where the king suffers? They are confused and frustrated, perhaps even angry. And so Jesus uses this next event, I think, to encourage three of the the uh, lead disciples and to teach them about who He is and what would happen in the coming kingdom. And the passage that I'm talking about is Luke chapter 9 and our passage of study tonight. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. Let me read and you follow along. Luke 9, 28. This is the Word of God. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, But when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. And as they were leaving Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one 
in those days any of the things which they had seen. On this day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy, and a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them, so they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. We have further proof that Jesus is the Messiah who was sent to die. And while we understand all of the circumstances leading up to his death and why it was necessary, the disciples are far from understanding, which is why in the last verse they this idea was hidden from them. They don't understand the significance of the idea and they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Jesus is the Messiah who was sent to die. We see in verses 28-36 through that the identity of the Messiah is confirmed by God the Father. The identity of Jesus as the Son is confirmed by the Father. In verses 28 and 29, He is glorious. They go up to this mountain to pray, and while he is praying, verse 29, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Last week we saw in verse 20 that Peter had rightly answered that Jesus is the Messiah of God, the Christ of God. And when he, on behalf of the disciples, answered correctly, Jesus for the very first time tells them that he's going to to die and to be raised from the dead. And then he uses the next uh, period of time to explain to them the importance of wholehearted devotion to Him. That just like Jesus will, would suffer, so would they suffer. And so they needed to come after Him and deny, deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Him. And that they should not be ashamed of Him. And that they should be willing to lose their life so that they would gain a greater life. We concluded last week by looking at the promise that Jesus made to the disciples. And notice what that promise was in verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So after He makes this promise, some of you are are not going to die before you see a glimpse of the kingdom of God. About a week later, Jesus and His three disciples go up this mountain. And Jesus now gives them a glimpse of His glory. This is likely Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And notice He doesn't take all of His disciples in verse 28. He only takes Peter, John, and James. 
These are the same three that he took into the room when Jairus's, when Jairus's daughter had died. Just these three were the ones who witnessed that resurrection. And keep in mind that the disciples don't know, these three disciples do not know, that they're going up to the mountain to see something spectacular. Notice what they think they're going up to do. Verse 28, And they went up on the mountain to pray. Certainly there was some of that going on. But when they came down the mountain, they realized that this was more than just speaking to God. We would expect that verse 29 would read, while they were praying, but it reads, notice verse 29, and while He was praying. So verse 28 says, they all go up the mountain to pray, and who ends up doing the praying? It's Jesus. Jesus is about to show them something spectacular and unforgettable and something that will contribute to his to the understanding of the prophecy of his death and resurrection and the coming kingdom and notice what they're doing in verse 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. This is not the first time or this is not the last time this would happen. Remember when Jesus went to pray before his death he took the disciples along with them and said, Stay here. I'm going on a little further to pray. You pray as well. You watch and pray so you do not fall into temptation. He comes back after an hour and they're sleeping. He says, Can, I, can you not pray for one hour? Continue to pray. Watch your souls through prayer. And he goes back and he prays again. The disciples are... are their time is at a premium. They are being uh, bombarded on every side because of these powers that Jesus has given to them. Power to teach, power to, um, power to heal, power to cast out demons. So, so they are a, a hot commodity, so to speak. And so we can imagine that they are tired, but Jesus is saying there's something more important than sleeping. And he, he goes to pray. And he's the only one praying, apparently, when his appearance begins to change. In verse 29, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Jesus is glorious because he is the King. We call this passage the transfiguration. And the reason for that is because Matthew and Mark's Gospel both call it that. They use the word transfigure. The word transfigure comes from the Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosize or transform. In Romans 12:2, that same word for transfigure is used, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed. 2 Corinthians 3:18, that we are all being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That is, through the Word of God, we are being shaped and molded into something greater a greater Christian. In this case, for Jesus, it didn't have to do with growth in godliness, but there was a transformation. And for Him, it was a transformation of appearance. It has to do with, notice, this light emanating from his Him at the end of verse 29, and His clothing became white and gleaming. His body was so white that His clothes became white, so white that they were whiter than anyone could wash them, according to Mark chapter 9, verse 3. 
Matthew's Gospel tells us that His face shined as the bright as the sun, chapter 17, verse 2. And this is an indication of who Christ is. And this was important for the disciples to see who Christ was. Because in the Old Testament, God's visible presence is often associated with light. Can you think of some lights that, that symbolize the presence of God in the Old Testament? Okay, the fire on the mountain, right? When, they're, when, they're, when Moses goes up to receive the law, he enters the cloud, but for the children of Israel, they see it as fire. Like the, like, the, like the whole mountain's on fire. What other times have we see God's presence symbolized through light in the Old Testament? Right. So Moses goes onto the mountain. He comes down with his face shining. There's a, there's a key difference, by the way, between that shining and Jesus shining. With Moses, it was a reflection of God's glory. For Jesus, it was a display of His glory. It was coming from Jesus. The difference between the sun and the moon, right? Moses is more like the moon. He's reflecting the light. Jesus is the light. See? Any other times we see a symbol of God's presence displayed in light? Right. The pillar of fire by night. How about the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? Okay, so this is, this is uh, uh, the way in which God symbolizes His presence with His people. That I am with you. And that's even the, the golden lampstand that we talked about this morning. That's a symbol of God's presence. That He will always be there. He's not going to go away. It's always burning. Listen to Revelation 21-23. Um, I think we read this this morning, in fact. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The point is is that Jesus is greater than He appeared to be to the disciples. He is greater than He appeared to be to the disciples. See, when they saw Him, they just saw Him as a normal human being with some amazing powers, some amazing abilities. And what Jesus is saying, I'm more than what you think I am. Yes, I'm the Messiah. You got that correct. But I want you to be confident of this, that I am the very Son of God. I am God in human form. Two reasons why this event is so important. First, it served as an encouragement to these three disciples who, as I began this evening, were discouraged, I think, about the news that Jesus would suffer and die and confused. How could a king suffer? How could his kingdom not be established? How could a king die? And so Jesus is encouraging them, listen, I am God. My purposes will stand. The second reason that this event is so important is because it revealed Christ's hidden glory. And they needed to understand His hidden glory because that was important or necessary for their proper interpretation of the resurrection. They needed to recognize that, you know what? He did die. But look what happened later. He rose from the dead. And think back. Okay, the disciples, remember, after the, 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 the uh, death of Christ, were just perplexed. What is going on? And then when His body's taken, what happened? And so, as the pieces of the puzzle start to be filled in, they think back to the transfiguration. Which, by the way, they hadn't told the other disciples 
up until after the resurrection, apparently. And so their interpretation of the resurrection was dependent upon having seen His glory here on Mount Hermon. It was also important that it it revealed Christ's hidden glory because that hidden glory would fully be revealed at His second coming. One day Christ will be revealed for who He really is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Jesus is glorious, verses 28 and 29. Then we see Jesus is greater than the prophets, verses 30 through 33. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Now we have some serious action going on. One of the most significant events in the life of Jesus takes place here on this mountain. Jesus is transformed into brilliant light. Moses and Elijah show up in verses 30 and 31. And they're talking about the departure of Jesus, that He's going to die at Jerusalem, apparently. And the disciples are sleeping. Verse 32, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. And as they were leaving Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke records, He didn't realize what he was saying. You can just picture Peter just overcome with sleep as Jesus begins to pray. Remember, uh, they go up the mountain to pray. Peter, James, and John are are there. Jesus is there. Jesus begins to pray. They begin to fall asleep. And I don't think they actually see the transfiguration. I don't think they actually see the change. Maybe they're kind of waking up, falling back asleep. But then at some point, notice verse 32, middle of the verse, but when they were fully awake, they saw His glory. This is when they see His glory, I think, for the first time. After they're fully awake. And it wiped the sleep from their eyes. And am I really seeing this? And they see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. They start to comprehend what's going on. They hear the conversation And so as a result, Peter, still half asleep, or maybe maybe still uh, recovering from his sleep, tries to preserve the moment. And so he says, Jesus, why don't we make three tabernacles and the three of you can just stay right here. We'll, We'll serve you in whatever ways we can. This will be great. And the text says that he doesn't understand what he's saying. They don't understand the significance of the moment nor of the significance of Jesus over Moses and Elijah. That that Jesus is not on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are going to go away, but what's what's going to be clear is that God, God confirms that Jesus is the Son of God. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus is the chosen Son of God. While He was speaking, or while He was saying this, that is Peter, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. You remember when Moses was on the mountain? He was the only one that was allowed to go to the summit. Joshua was left behind. He entered the cloud and apparently I think he walked 
inside the glory cloud for seven days until he finally reached the top, and that's when God spoke to him. I think this is another symbol of that. That is, God descends upon this mountain. His very presence is there. And He invites the three disciples to join Jesus in there because He wants them to understand something. And as they're afraid, God speaks. And He confirms in verse 35 that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, all along, Luke has been getting us as his readers to ask the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? The disciples have been asking it. The Pharisees have been asking it. Herod has been asking it. Who is this man? And now we have in big, bold letters who this man Jesus is. God says, He is my chosen Son. And you need to listen to Him. After God declares His identity, He gives this command. Listen to Him. Suggest that the ministries of Moses and Elijah had ended. Two great men of the Old Testament who were to be listened to. They were prophets of God. And they symbolized all that the Old Testament was made of. The, the law and the prophets. But now... It was Jesus who would represent God, and they were to listen to Him. You know, this is the primary way that God speaks to us today. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. That is through His Son. Hebrews chapter 1. In verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, like Moses and Elijah, and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. A couple things to point out there. Verse 1, that God has spoken to people in many times and in many ways, through dreams, visions, through... God's appointed leaders through prophets. But now He speaks through His Son because His Son is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation. He's a one-for-one representation of who God the Father is. And He has been appointed heir of all things. And so the way that we hear from God now is through His Son. Turn back to Luke chapter 9. You might say, well, I've never heard Jesus speak, so how can I hear from His Son? Well, we have the Word. Jesus, remember, became the Word. He was the Word, became flesh, and dwelled among us. We want to know what God thinks, and we listen to Jesus. And this Word is about Jesus. In verse 36 of chapter 9, Jesus is misunderstood. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. 
And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Disciples didn't tell anyone what they had saw or what they had seen. And I think the reason for that is because they didn't fully understand all of the implications of what it meant that Jesus was the chosen Son of God. And so he didn't want them to sloppily pass out that information when they didn't understand it fully. I mean, why was Jesus transfigured? Was it for his own benefit? Did Did he need confirmation from God? Was he kind of learning who he was as he went? Was it for the reader's benefit? Do we not know who He is? No, we know that He is the Messiah. And I, I think it's partially for us, but not primarily. I think it was for the disciples. They needed the transfiguration. They needed to get a glimpse of His glory. They needed to get a glimpse of His identity and get confirmation from God that He is the Messiah so that they would be able to understand His future exaltation. The identity of the Messiah is confirmed by God the Father. And then next we see the Messiah depends on the Father for performing miracles. The Messiah depends on the Father. Verses 37 through 43. Here we have a demon-possessed boy. Notice how serious in verse 39. The Father says, And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. And then verse 42. While Jesus was approaching, the demon slammed the boy to the ground. Sorry, that's actually talking about the boy. While the boy was still approaching, the demon slammed the boy to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. So this is not just some demon that's kind of troubling him and keeping him from being able to speak. This is destroying this this young man. And the problem is, the ver- verse 40 says that the disciples could not cast this demon out. Apparently, the nine disciples who were down at the base of the mount- mountain were being called on to heal this. And so the, the man asked Jesus to do it. And we need to ask the question, why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? Had not Jesus given them authority to do such a thing? In chapter 9, verse 1, And He called the twelve together, and He gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. They had done this before, just recently. And Jesus had given them the authority, but they could not do it this time. Because apparently, when they went out, remember one of the things was they were not allowed to take anything with them, not even a bag for their provisions. And they were supposed to stay with somebody. And I, and I said at the time that I think the importance of that or the, the point of that was that it would cause them to depend upon God for His provision and His protection and His guidance. And apparently what happened over time that while the, they were depending on God, depending on God, casting out demons, then here it seems like they stopped depending on God. They depend more on their own abilities. And as a result, they're unable to help this man and his son. And that's why I think verse 41 is directed not at the Father, but at the, but at the disciples. Look at verse 41. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation... 
How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Okay, one person cannot be a generation. And that's why I think he's talking about the disciples, which are a representation probably of more people, but 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 primarily is the disciples, that you are the unbelieving and perverted generation disciples. Because you have failed to trust in me, even though you have seen my uh you have seen my power, you have heard my teaching, you have seen me work through you. The disciples were the unbelieving ones. In fact, I think the man actually had some faith. If you were to look at some of the other passages that record this, Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel record it. This is the man who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So he actually had faith because he came to Jesus and depended upon His power. It was the disciples who were not trusting in God. And so Jesus obviously fully trusting in God, in verse 42, rebuked the unclean spirit in the middle of the verse and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed, notice, at the greatness of not Jesus, but God. That is, Jesus is God. They are amazed at the greatness of God who is the Son. The Messiah depends on the Father for performing miracles. And then finally, the Messiah does the Father's will even though it means death. The Messiah does the Father's will, even though it means death. Verses 43 to 45. So, the first time that Jesus explains and reveals to the disciples that He's going to die, they're perplexed. And they head up to the mountain to pray. Jesus reveals Himself. They get a glimpse of His glory and they hear from God that He is the Chosen One, the, the Messiah. And now, after this brief miracle, Jesus wants to reinforce what He had just stated eight days earlier. And here's what He tells them in verse 44. Notice this is directed at His disciples, verse 43. His twelve disciples. And He says in verse 44, "...let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men." He adds a minor detail into his revelation about what's going to happen to him. Before, he said he was going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, that they are the ones who are going to carry out his death. And now what he adds is, I'm actually going to be handed over to them. I think he's talking about one of two things, and both of them have biblical support. One is the betrayal of Judas, that Judas betrays him. And so perhaps he's sharing that. But um, but it also could be that he's talking about God the Father handing him over to the chief priests and the scribes. Not in the form of betrayal, but listen to Romans eight thirty one and 32 because it actually uses the same word. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? He, God, who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him or handed Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? So it is both Judas who hands Him over and God the Father who hands Him over that take responsibility for the handing over of Jesus to the chief priests. And this does not compute for the disciples. They did not understand it, verse 45. 
They did not understand the statement and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it and they were afraid to ask Him about this statement. Now, it says that it was concealed from them. Don't think God the Father concealed it from them. Remember, what, Jesus, what does Jesus say? How does, he, uh, how, do, how does He begin His statement in verse 44? Let these words sink into your ears. Or as He says in other places, He who has an ear, let him hear. What I'm about to say is very important. And so Christ prefaced His news with those words. And I don't think God is concealing this from them. I think this is concealed as a result of their own unbelief. Their own sin. Perhaps they didn't want to think about the terrible future. They didn't want to think of the fact that Jesus could actually be gone from us. Sometimes when we know there's something wrong, we don't want to know we, we don't know, want to know the details. We don't want to know how severe it is. Like having a pain in your teeth. You don't want to go to the dentist for fear that it might mean something even more painful. So maybe that's the reason that they're acting the way that they are. They don't want to ask, they don't want to find out more. Because they're afraid of what this could mean for them. But the most probable reason that they were afraid to ask is that they remembered what happened last time someone questioned Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Peter said, You're not going to die. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan. And so perhaps they're just afraid of Jesus responding uh, harshly against their lack of understanding. Two principles that we can draw from this text and and take with us this evening. Number one, learning truth is critical to future growth. Learning truth is critical to future growth. Sometimes when we learn truth, we don't fully understand what the truth means. Sometimes we are far from understanding what the truth means. But God is... God is gracious and God is amazing in the fact that that He allows some of these truths that we don't fully understand to be stored in our minds for future reference when we will have more information and a greater capacity to interpret that truth that we had learned a long time ago. I remember when I uh, became a father that I started to understand some of the things that I had learned when I was under my parents' authority. Things that I always knew that they did. I just didn't understand why. I didn't have the capacity to understand what they were doing. I didn't have all the information at the time. This, is, this example is kind of silly, but I think it will illustrate my point. When, when I was growing up, my parents would have us uh, drink a glass of water after we got injured. And I didn't, you know... It didn't matter how serious or minor the injury was. My mom would immediately get us a glass of water, and I never knew why until I became a father. It was a way to settle down the child when they were uncontrollably crying. Because in order to take a drink, you have to stop crying. I can't attest to that personally because I never cried, but my brothers did. See, I saw them do it. 
Oh, it wasn't that they forced it down their throat and kind of grabbed their mouth. They would hand the cup to us and we would have to get our place to where we can control ourselves so that we could take a sip. There's nothing magical about the water. Isn't that amazing? But it was a way for us to calm down in a situation where we could have gotten further out of hand. I didn't understand that until I was a father. See, I had information, but I have all the information, and I had, didn't have the capacity to understand the importance of this. Do you realize that Peter and James and John were unclear about what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah? They understood, yes, that He was the promised one, but they didn't understand what that meant, all the implications. They didn't understand it until after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to them and reminded them about the Messiah. And that, you remember what I told you? That I would suffer and die, that I would be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes to be killed and to die, but then to to raise from the dead. Listen to Peter's now seasoned interpretation of this event when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-18. through 18. He thinks back to that event on Mount Hermon and he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this, was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And, and then Peter says, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter now has some time to think back and to reflect on the significance of event that at the time he didn't understand. Remember what he said? Why don't we set up three tabernacles and we'll just all hang out here for a long time? And the text says, not knowing what he was saying. Even as they come down from the mountain, they don't understand. And so the application for us is this. Learning truth is critical to future growth. Don't ever walk away from a service thinking, well, that was of no value to me because it didn't help me with anything that I needed today. Do you realize that God cares more about your today? He, he cares more than just about your today. He cares about how you're going to perceive Him and the circumstances of life down the road. And so what He's going to do is feed you, at times, bits and pieces of information that you may not fully understand now. But later, when you have a greater capacity to understand because you're growing in your walk with Him, you'll be able to look back and understand these things. And yet, we tend to come to services thinking, I need to get something that's going to help me today. And if I don't, it's been a waste. And we should never walk away thinking that because God sometimes teaches us things from His Word in order to prepare us for a time when we can understand those things more fully. Second principle that we can draw from this is second principle we see here is the king is the real deal. The king is the real deal, so listen to him. 
Jesus had just told the disciples a week earlier to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Him. And that He is worthy to be followed. Now, now they see it. They see God. They, they, they see the glory cloud and they hear from God, this is My chosen one, My chosen Son. Listen to Him. Jesus is worthy to be followed, so we ought to listen to Him. It's not enough for us to be impartial toward Jesus. You know, I, I, I kind of like Him. I enjoy being around Him. I enjoy listening to Him. Do you realize that King Herod and Pontius Pilate both were interested in Jesus and enjoyed listening to Him? King Herod loved to listen to John the Baptist. That doesn't do anything for you. We must listen to Him And listening in the Scriptures has to do primarily with responding in obedience. So we must give ourselves in wholehearted, devoted service to Him. That is, listening and obeying. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would occupy our lowly hearts and own them all and reign within conquer every rebel power. Take away all the idols that are set up against You. Lord, we we serve all sorts of things in this day. We don't fully understand all the implications of what it means to follow You, what it means that You are the Messiah. But Lord, pack that deep into our souls so that when we have the capacity to understand, we come back and look on these things and are reminded of Your grace. That, Lord, You prepared us for a day when we, we will become able to understand these things. Lord, deepen our faith. Deepen our understanding of You. We cannot please You apart from knowing You more. And so we pray that You would make that our life's goal, to serve You by growing in knowledge and love for You and responding to Your truth by listening to Your Son and obeying Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.